The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Sulik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, the government is trying to move on from the exams fiasco with a string of virus-related announcements, although in parenthesis, of course, tomorrow we've got the GCSE results, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with those. But meanwhile, the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, has announced testing will be expanded to get a better idea of how many people are infected by the virus at any one time. Now, the ONS Infection Survey is going to test 150,000 people a fortnight in England by October. October. That's up from 28,000. Now, the scheme is separate from the mass testing program of people with symptoms, as it aims to take a random sample of the general population to help the government identify emerging outbreaks. But, uh, but testing and this government haven't been great in terms of working together in the recent past. No, we're still waiting, aren't we, to see that world-beating test and trace system that we know is so critical to be able to get on with all of this. If you have a look at the papers today, it is a mess for the government, I've got to say. A lot of blame coming their way from leader columns, from front pages. So the other thing they're looking at to try and move this on is testing, potentially, air passengers arriving back into the UK. It's a possible replacement for the 14-day quarantines that are required when you return from certain countries that we know create a lot of issues for people. Um, We've had unions on the show recently talking about unpaid, um, uh, leave that you you have to take essentially if you are quarantined and you're not eligible for that you can't work from home so Heathrow Airport already establishing a new test facility Matt Hancock saying the system would need to pass through rigorous safety checks before it's given the go-ahead the challenge is how to do that testing in a way that we can have confidence enough in to release the quarantine but it, absolutely it's a project that we're working with Heathrow on because clearly I, I understand the impact of quarantine on so many people's lives it's not something anybody would want to do. But however much the government would like to deflect away from the exam situation, which of course has been something of a millstone round their neck, Labour is determined to keep putting the boots in. In fact, the Royal College of GPs is also on the attack. They're concerned that pupils whose marks were lower than their teachers' predictions are missing out on their top choice of universities and possibly uh, on medical training, which many people think we need more doctors, so that will be a downside of that. Well, the Shadow Housing Secretary, Tangnam de Bonaire, is shocked that Boris Johnson hasn't made any comment about it. We've heard nothing. I think it speaks volumes. There's all sorts of just letting things go slide by this Prime Minister. And the fact that he's made no comment at all, as far as I can see, on A-level results, I think that speaks volumes. I think young people will judge him. Young people will judge him. Well, joining us now is Charlotte Nichols, who's a Labour MP for Warrington North. I mean, Charlotte, we've been through 
everything here on this story. It seems to have gone on forever. We know how tomorrow is going to play out, more or less, given that the system has been changed. The government made that U-turn they said they weren't going to make. Is it time to move on from this now? I don't think that it is time to move on. Unfortunately, for too many young people, the government's U-turn, welcome though it was, was too little too late. They've already lost university placements. They've already lost apprenticeship offers and job opportunities off the back of being downgraded. And although a lot of universities are now saying that they're going to do their best to honour the sort of revised grades, effectively, because of social distancing and so on, a lot of them are going to find it very difficult to offer additional places and to have the capacity and the funding to do that. So the government really needs to step up. Okay, in the midst of all this, should Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, resign? I think his position is completely untenable. He should absolutely resign. Okay, your leader, Keir Starmer, hasn't said that he should, has he? I think, you know, asking for resignations for anyone, you do risk getting someone even worse. And, you know, that's his position, I suppose. But ultimately, you know, it's been very clear from the constituents of mine that I've spoken to particularly young people who feel like the government has snatched their future away from them, that his position is totally and utterly untenable. Is it not quite a volatile time, though? We've got school reopening, which is going to be a huge issue, and presumably you want some stability at the top of the Department for Education to get that done smoothly. It is a very volatile time, but ultimately, given the challenge that's ahead for getting schools reopened, you would want someone doing that who is competent. And I think that Gavin Williamson has shown that he isn't. Now, we've got the GCSEs coming out tomorrow, Charlotte, as you know. There's a much larger number of people uh, and potentially much bigger effect on the jobs market. Not the jobs market, it's particularly good, obviously, at the moment. What do you think is going to happen now the government's made the concession? Will, Will the GCSE thing at least go through smoothly? I hope that having made the U-turn, that all the worry and the anxiety that A-level students had to go through, and particularly in the days following their results being downgraded, that GCSE students won't have the same um, kind of impact. But it is going to have a huge effect on college courses in particular, um, and in making sure that there are, as you said, sufficient job opportunities for these young people to go into after they've completed their GCSEs, because young people at the moment going into an incredibly insecure labour market and I don't think that enough has been done to make sure that there are going to be jobs, apprentices and training opportunities for young people to be going into. And what about those going into higher education? Slapped across the front page of the Telegraph today is a demand from universities for more money to teach the extra students that are coming in as a result. Is that something that the government needs to be thinking about? Absolutely. We know that there are critical shortages already, particularly um, in nursing, but also across the healthcare sector. If we have extra medical students this year, then that is a massive bonus for the country because we can try and address that shortage. But the fact is that it costs money to train them up and the government needs to make sure that higher education institutions have got that. Now, Charlotte, a moment ago we mentioned going back to school, and this is the big thing on the government's agenda. They want to make sure that school resumes in September. But there are safety issues. Uh, Teaching unions have talked about the concerns they have about going back. Where do you stand on the balance between safety, on the one hand, for both pupils and teachers, but also the need to get people back to school just for their futures? Absolutely. I think that... 
it has been an incredibly difficult time for parents who have been trying to balance working from home um, with the fact that the schools haven't had children in unless you're a key worker. It's been an incredibly difficult time for teachers who have had to really quickly adapt to this new landscape and try and make sure that the children are still getting a quality education at home. And it's been a really, really difficult time for children because, you know, these are some of the formative years of their life and the socialisation and everything else that they get at school, they've not been getting. So I think it's in everyone's interest that we get schools reopened as soon as possible. But as you said, the key is that it's safely. And I think that the guidance that the government have given schools from the get-go has often been contradictory, particularly in terms of things like bubbles within classrooms and so on. They need to really make sure that if schools are going to be reopening in September for all students, and I really hope that that's something that's going to be possible, that they've put every possible safety precaution in place to allow that to happen. And then at the same time, we've heard uh, time and time again from government scientists that they think we may have reached our capacity as a society as to how much we can really have running and so as not to risk uh, another infection. So if we open schools, something's got to give. Are you, are you open to that as a possibility? It seems like a necessity given what we've heard from those scientists. And I think that any decision that we take has to be one that is led by the science. And clearly, we're going to have to really closely monitor the impact of school reopenings over the first few days and weeks to make sure that it isn't having any kind of negative impact on the RA either nationally or regionally. And I think from what we've seen from local lockdowns or increased restrictions being put in place in certain areas, um, Greater Manchester, which borders my constituency in particular, there are steps that can be taken to kind of restrict other areas almost to ensure that schools can reopen if that's something that the science says is necessary. But you can imagine how unpopular that could be. I mean, particularly, I suppose, if you want to go out and go you to know, pubs and things, but also just local business. I mean, where you are, you mentioned your constituency. What's the mood you pick up there in terms of what people are, uh, are willing to tolerate, if you like, going forward in terms of further restrictions? What price they're prepared to pay, potentially, for getting kids back to school or keeping everyone healthy? We have been incredibly fortunate in Warrington in terms of our local RA and the number of cases that we've got locally, particularly when you look at some of the areas which we border, which is some of the most affected places in the country. I think people here have been very sensible. They have been abiding by the guidance that's been put out the whole way through. And I think if people had to choose between the schools reopening and something else having to be temporarily you know, restricted or closed down in some way. So that is a sacrifice that I think anyone would be willing to take in order to get the schools back. The key thing is that if that's a decision that's gone for, that whichever business area it is that has to kind of reduce its output, I suppose, at the moment, that they would be properly compensated by the government and that it wouldn't lead to any risks for that business or for their employees as we come through this period. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more 
at cartereconomicforum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics then. We start with a bit of local government news, I suppose, because uh, there's a new report out that says that councils in England could exceed spending by around £2 billion as a result of the pandemic. It comes from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which says that financial pressures on local authorities will continue into the next year and beyond. It says some could face a difficult choice between depleting their reserves to potentially risky levels or cutting budgets for important local services. And this is something that impacts all across the country. I was reading just the other day about bridges in London and how TfL funding could mean that many of them might have to be closed to pedestrians in the same way that Hammersmith Bridge has. Yeah, indeed. And of course, the charities have been in, the, in a very difficult position uh, across this whole period. People have barely been in the position to do anything for them. Of course, 11 British charities are warning thousands of jobs could be lost because shielding employees don't feel safe returning to their workplace. The charities, including Age UK, say vulnerable staff have grave concerns. They'll be forced to risk their health by going back to workplaces which aren't going to protect them from the virus. They're calling for the government to introduce a furlough-style scheme for shielding and high-risk workers to avoid job losses. Yeah, and then on the Brexit front, we've got to talk about it. Those talks are going on. Downing Street says it believes the UK can still get a trade deal with the EU next month, very soon. According to the BBC, the Prime Minister's spokesman said UK negotiators are going to keep on plugging the gaps in the seventh round of talks taking place in Brussels this week. But the two sides, of course, are divided over competition, over fishing, and how a deal would actually be enforced. And now the FT is saying that Brussels has rejected the UK's demands for wide-ranging access to the EU for British truckers. So that's another issue to, to deal with there. And that's a standoff that could hurt European supply chains if it isn't resolved by the end of the transition period. So, so much still to sort out. We had Tim Bale on the other day saying he thought maybe we'll get something this year, but September, wow, that sounds pretty ambitious, Roger. It certainly does, given where we've been. But, uh, of course, everything's operating this week in the shadow of what was perhaps the biggest U-turn and humiliation so far for this government. It wasn't about Brexit either, because this seems to be an administration that rolls on regardless. Is it even damaged? Well, joining us now is the Bloomberg opinion columnist, Therese Raphael. Uh, Therese, welcome to the programme again. Um, been a pretty bad week for the government, but the Prime Minister, still on holiday from Scotland, hasn't rushed back. No heads are rolling. Was it um, something they can just move on from, dust themselves down and carry on? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be that easy to move on from this one. I mean, there, there are several differences with previous um, fiascos. For one, you know, this wasn't just sprung on them um, at the last moment. They had months to prepare for uh, how they were going to deal with exam revelations. Uh, It also started with Boris Johnson promising students to get the grades they needed, that nobody would be worse off, and the announcement of this algorithm. Now, obviously, they have done a massive U-turn this week. Students are seem to be broadly happy because they were given these teacher assessed grades. But now we've got, say, something in the order of 100,000 students who've met the requirements for university places, which is about two and a half times the normal level. So universities need to scramble to try to find the place for all these students, but also at a time of social distancing. So um, you mentioned speaking with uh, Tim Bale earlier. I was also speaking with him. And, you know, at his university, he was talking about how how uh, classes had been, you know, for seminars would be reduced in number. And that meant they would have to put on, you know, additional seminars to accommodate these students. And how do you do that if your intake is increasing? Um, so, you know, all of this comes at a time when the higher education sector of Britain 
was facing a crisis even before the virus hit. So we had uh, a number of universities um, were in financial deficits. Um, and, you know, it's, I think that just is compounded by the virus. And the government's going to have to come back and do more than just smooth things with exams. But it's also going to have to explain, you know, why did things go so badly wrong when they had so much time to try to work out the kinks? Why, you know, why wasn't the Royal Statistical Society taken up on its offer to kind of help um, help vet this algorithm? And all of yeah. those questions, I think, we're going to see some kind of inquiry. Yeah, a lot to be answered there, even within the wider realm of the of the virus response. I mean, in terms of moving on from this, because as we spoke about in yeah. the first part of the program, Labour still putting the pressure on and it's really being felt you see it in the papers today and we're seeing also rumors of a reshuffle is that the sort of thing that can hit reset on all of this and help the government put this behind it well i think there are always rumors of a reshuffle whenever the government is under pressure so you know when is a reshuffle not happening usually only just after one has happened so i, I think this um, you know that, that's maybe not surprising it's also we're coming on the autumn uh it's some would say that that's a good time for a reshuffle. My sense is that this is a government that is going to resist um, the pressure to do that because it will just look um, like a sign of weakness. It will look like they're panicking. And we've seen on previous occasions with Dominic Cummings and, you know, his his uh, ill-advised trip-breaking lockdown restrictions and here again with Education uh, Secretary Gavin Williamson, that Johnson does not want to be sort of bounced into making uh, cabinet-level uh, sackings and, and decisions and reshuffles. He wants to do this on his own time. So, I, you know, I'd be surprised if he if he sort of bows the claims for reshuffle. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, there will be, you know, he will be looking very closely at a string of kind of mishaps and decisions and wanting to make sure that his cabinet is up to uh, up to the task ahead, which includes, you know, obviously the Brexit negotiations, the potential for a second wave or, you know, renewed uh, uptick in virus cases just as kids are getting back to school, the winter pressures on the NHS. So this could be, uh, you know, after a, a fairly quiet August, of, apart from the education scandal, um, you know, it, it, it could really rain down on all fronts. But the interesting thing, I mean, you talk about Boris Johnson perhaps deciding whether or not to keep the cabinet as it is. Some people suggest that maybe it's almost out of his hands. This is a cabinet, after all, that was picked with one purpose, a cabinet that's stuck with him. Does he feel perhaps that he has to be loyal to them? Do they perhaps, could they perhaps be more dangerous if they left? And therefore, perhaps, is it unsackable? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Where does power actually lie? And we assume that with a 80-seat majority, it lies with the prime minister, um, but it's it's not so straightforward because we've seen on China and Huawei, we saw on this education scandal that the Tory party is perfectly capable of mounting uh, a, a you know pretty powerful um, opposition in front of the prime minister if it feels he's got things wrong. So you, he will also have to be uh, watching very closely the Tory backbench. Uh, he will, and you know, clearly until he's 
got through the Brexit, uh, the Brexit negotiations and, and come up with some kind of a deal that he can sell people. I think he'll be reluctant to do anything that's going to anger that part of the party. Um, I noted that Nigel Farage's Brexit party is sending around emails asking people if they're exercised about uh, migrants coming over uh, from Calais and, and sort of probing to see where, you know, what might uh, excite that sort of wing of the uh, conservative party. And, uh, I, you know, I think Johnson's going to be very, very mindful of that. OK, what about some better news? The virus figures over here looking up. And if you compare that to Europe, uh, it, it, there's quite a stark difference. I mean, I was looking at Germany this morning where the daily, daily cases have doubled in the last three weeks. So quite the difference there. Something the government will want to uh, make a thing out of, I suppose. I imagine that will be brought up from time to time <laughs> at news conferences. It's, it's really hard to know what's behind the fluctuations in figures. Obviously, there's um, you know, a great deal more testing in some places. I think in Europe, we're seeing much more mobility um, than, than we've seen before. I mean, the summer, the summer travel season has been, you know, I think much more robust than a lot of people were expecting. You know, no flights aren't full and resorts aren't full, but, but people have started, uh, have started traveling again. And, uh, you know, some places have reopened uh, uh, facilities where you have you know lots of people in crowded in one place. I guess the question is: is this is this travelers that uh, are behind um, the outbreak? In which case, we might see uh, that die down in September. And it also will be a test for the tracing systems and the contact tracing that has been put in place. And that's something where the UK is you know clearly weak right now. Um, and you know, that th that will be something the government is um, going to be going to be pressed on, especially as the schools go back and, uh, um, you know, winter sort of descends upon us. And speaking of good news, which I suppose is probably what Downing Street's <laughs> scrabbling around to find at the moment, they were putting out this interesting line, you mentioned Brexit earlier, perhaps talking up the prospects of a deal. Uh, do you think perhaps the ground is moving slightly? They'd like a lot of good news to come in the autumn after all, wouldn't they? Well, we've seen the government, you know, trying to close trade deals with Japan, with Canada, with the U.S., and nothing's really, you know, there's been no big big announcement. So I, I, but then Boris Johnson desperately wants something that he can tout as a deal. Now, we all know that that's going to be a pretty bare-bones deal because the kind of comprehensive agreement that uh, covers, you know, all the different areas of negotiation, well, there's just not that much time left to do that. And the distance between the parties is still quite far on some issues. Um, but I think the question of uh, whether or not there's a deal, maybe a secondary, the question of you know who has to move most, and here you'd have to bet that, that Britain will have to uh, move most to close the gap with Europe, um, because the EU really needs to be seen to be holding the line on the issues that you know, certain member states like France on fishing care most about. It, it can't be seen to be giving into the UK too much on some of those things. So, you know, I, I, I would probably still place my money on some kind of agreement being reached, uh, but not for a while and not until probably October or, or later. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.